Well, good morning. That's not too bad. Let's try it again, though. Good morning. That's better. I want everybody online to hear you say that. And good morning to you online as well. Those of you that are tuning in from various parts of the city and the island, and indeed around the world. I don't know if you know this for those of you that are here, but people are tuning in from Kuala Lumpur, South Africa, Russia, Jamaica, Brazil, and all these different types of places as well. So we're very blessed to have the ability to gather together as people and to be able to gather online. And for those of you that are visitors this morning, a warm welcome to you. It is good to have some folks back with us. I want to say a special hello to Wanai as she's here visiting. It's good to see you. And welcome back to our friend, Brother Dave Murray. We've missed you, Dave, as well. And great to have you back. And we're celebrating. If a guy looks like he's finally arrived to middle age, that would be Chris McCullough. He is 40. And uh, so congratulations, uh, Chris, and happy birthday to you on this weekend. Well, if you've got your Bibles, and I pray you do, let's go to, again to John chapter 15. As Paul said, my series is called Conversations with Christ, and I do apologize. I did not mean to look like the man in black. I, Johnny Cash is not my idol. I did have a nice gray blazer, but it's just too hot, and uh, so I'm just going to go with my black uh, image here for you today. So that's what's going on there. But here's the title of my sermon. I want to get us right into this. Our relationship to the God who loves us. Maybe I could say, what is our relationship to the God who loves us? So let me start by saying this. What is the most important relationship you have? If you were asked, if somebody asked you today, if, for those of you that are married, if your kids ask you, what's the most important relationship, mommy or daddy or nanny or poppy or friend or whatever it might be, what I mean is this, what is or who is the one thing or person that you simply couldn't live without? You would miss the most. What is that one relationship you invest the most time in? Who is that one person or what is that one thing that you long to be with? What relationship do you value the most? Think about the most. Believe it or not, it's harder than you think it is to answer that question. If you're single, what is your most valued relationship? Who or what is it that you miss or long for the most? If you're dating, I might have what the person you're dating hopes will be the answer to that question. If you're engaged, I definitely know who the person you're engaged to hopes is the answer to that question. Are you married? How about your kids? If you asked your kids, who is mommy's greatest relationship with? Who's daddy's greatest? And so on and so forth. And we can go on and go on it goes. But in John chapter 15, John chapter 15 could be aptly named a relationship chapter. If you look at it, just very quickly, an overview, because this is what I'm going to be preaching over the next few weeks when I preach again, verses 1 to 11 is all about our relationship with God. Hence, this is the focus today. In verses 12 to 17, Jesus talks about our relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Then in verses 18 to 27, which takes us to the last of the chapter, it's all about our relationship, or rather, our lack of relationship with the world. Now, to put this in its perspective, and since my parents are here, I thought I would get a little bit personal. I would talk about my relationship with my dad. I have told you as a church, both here and online, little bits and pieces of my story with my dad. And while there are many, many stories I can draw from, many events, many times and things that we did, many outings that we had, and many of my favorite things are the simple moments that I can think of as it relates to my father-son relationship that I have with my dad, the truth is I can boil down my relationship to a handful of moments that stand out above the rest. And when it comes to answering this question for us all this morning, what relationship is most important? I can honestly say that my dad taught me at a young age what that looks like. Now, some of you know, or at least maybe some of you here and some of you online might know a little bit about me. In my teen years, I was quite rebellious. I was a rebellious, angry, and bitter teenager, if I was going to be completely honest. I had a poor view of God. 
I had an even poorer viewer of the ch- view of the church and professing Christians. Now, in full disclosure, some of that was not my fault, but most of it was. Now, of course, as often is the case, but all too often is the, say, the last thing that we want to admit or own, was in my rebelliousness, I was a sinner. I was selfish. I was self-centered. I was angry. And I was defensive. Truth is, things had been done to me. I had been victimized by many things, unfair things, hurtful things. And so I justified my sin. I justified my anger with God. I justified my fight against authority and rules or accountability. And I wanted somebody to blame. And no one had better blame me. And so at that point in my life, the only one I could blame besides God was my parents. Now, it's true, I had done a lot of things wrong. I had been outright bad, but in my teenage mind, it was fear for me to tip the scales. So what was bad done to me, I could now do some bad things, and that just made things balanced. And at this time, my father, even as he is today, was a pastor. He was trying to lead a small church around the bay here in Newfoundland, trying to lead. He was trying to be a parent. He was trying to help a lot of different folks. But as I said, I was angry and bitter. And instead of going to my father and being honest about my hurts, being honest about my questions and my doubts, I quite honestly expected him to read my mind and figure it all out. So I demanded of him that he read my mind and to make me the most important thing or person in my life and his. And in one poignant moment, when my dad was trying to correct me and I was having none of it, I thought I had a way to put my dad on the defensive. I thought I had a way to get him to backpedal. I thought, as a pastor, my dad was busy, the demands were great, the expectations were higher, and trust me, church, when I tell you that unless you've been a pastor or you have been the child of one, you honestly have no idea the pressures and window of humanity they have to pair into and process every single day. So... To defend myself and excuse myself, to excuse my sin and my pride and my hurt and my anger, I figured I'd appeal to my dad's heart for me, and while I was at it, I would ask him to appeal to my heart, his heart for my mother. So here was my accusation. In a fit of argument, I shouted at my dad, you love God and the church more than you love me and mom. And I was sure I had my dad. He'd have to let me off the hook now. He'd have to let me have my way. You see, I wanted to go to the dances, and I wanted to live my life in my way and on my terms. I didn't want to go to church anymore, and I was positive Dad would cave. Mom was there in the kitchen listening to this, and what would she think if Dad didn't affirm his love for his own wife and his only son? I was positive I had him. My dad hesitated for only one second as I awaited my victory. And then he looked at me and he said, Yes, son, I do love God and the church more than you and your mom. Well, that backfired. And then he quickly followed up that with these words. Stephen, because I love God and because I love his church more than you and mom, is the secret for me to love you and your mom the way I'm supposed to. And I have never forgotten that moment. I don't know if my dad had been reading John chapter 15 that day, because Jesus states to these 11 disciples and to you and I here in July of 2021, the most important relationship you and I have is the one we have with God. You see, John chapter 13 to 17 is masterfully by the Apostle John broken into pieces for us to read and understand. In John chapter 13 and 14, which is the, the kind of upper, uh, upper room, the supper time discourse Then in chapters 15 and 16, which is the second half, is when they're actually walking together, walking out through the across the Kedron Valley and making their way to the Mount of Olives. And then John 17, which is actually the Lord's Prayer, is that high priestly prayer of Jesus, or some people call it the prayer of consecration, 
of Jesus over his disciples. And 2,000 plus years later, Jesus prayed that prayer for every one of us who name him as our Lord and Savior. If you ever want to know what it feels like to have Jesus Christ pray for you, just read John chapter 17. Now, don't forget, when we've read this, what Paul has read for us in these five verses, Jesus is literally about 12 to 16 hours away from the cross. Judas is currently gone to betray him. Jesus has already told his disciples in John 13 that he's leaving them, that they are weak, that Peter's going to deny them. And then as we've learned in chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And as we saw last week, he adds to that, and don't let them be afraid. And we answered this question, how can that be? How can you and I have a non-troubled, peaceful, calm heart, a courageous heart, when we realize the world that we live in and the things that we struggle with? And Jesus sums it up like this, because of the relationship he has with us. Notice the order on that. It's not about the relationship I have with him. It's about the relationship he has with me. Jesus told his disciples about his love for them all through John 14. How, he, how that love is from God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. In John 14, 1-6, he promised to prepare a place for them. Then, and as we saw in the last two Sundays, at the end of John, he promised to come and take residence within them, promised to send the Holy Spirit to them who would teach them and remind them and empower them. He's promised, remember at the very end of John 14, that he would overcome Satan. And now he says, let's get up and go for a walk. And what happens next is Jesus explaining how his love for them affects their relationship with him. Now first, Jesus explains their relationship with God, as I've just said. Next, their relationship with each other. And then finally, their relationship with the world. And I would tell you, every one of you that's here this morning, that's really how you'll break down your relationships for life. Your relationship or your view of God, your relationship or your view of others, and your relationship or your view of the world, that is the sum total of your life. That's how easy it is to break it down. But I want you to get this. Jesus starts with the most important rate relationship of all, our relationship with him. And if you don't take anything from this this morning, but only get one thing, I want every one of us, me included, to leave with this thought. John chapter 15, verses 1 to 5, don't just tell us to follow Jesus. It's not a do's and don't passage. We are called to be spiritually connected to him. That's why Paul read about branches and vines. We're going to begin the journey to actually know what it means to do this. And this is the thing I feel even here at Calvary we are missing and need to get right for the rest, second half of 2021, into the future as God gives it to us. And that is what it means to abide in Christ. There you go. Surrey is interested again. I got to learn to leave that phone somewhere else. So number one, if you're following along, all right, verses one and two, Jesus explains how God uses us. In verses 1 and 2, Jesus is going to explain how he uses one of us. And what does John do? He starts it by letting us know this last of the I am statements of Jesus. I am the true vine. But then this time, Jesus adds a qualifier. And my Father, God the Father, is the vine dresser. Now, for two seconds of review, I want you to realize all the seven I am statements of Jesus. Because they all culminate right here. He said in John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. Which means, by the way, he was better than Moses, better than the manna. Remember, Israel thought that the manna, this is what made them Israel. That God had been with them in the wilderness, brought them out of Egypt, and manna, food from heaven had fallen down. And then Jesus says, I'm, I'm even better than that. And then he says, I am the light of the world. Remember the Feast of Booths and those massive brass trumpet-like torches that lit up, they say, half of Jerusalem. And they love to look at this. And Jesus points at these and says, no, I'm the light of the world. And then he said, I am the door to the sheep. Now, this one is a little obscure and you might miss it unless you know that there was actually a gate in Jerusalem called the sheep gate. 
It was the most popular gate for the Jews to go through to gain access to the Temple Mount. And one that they actually felt identified them as the sheep of Israel. And it's very likely that when Jesus says this, he's within proximity of that very gate and says, Look, you think that's entrance into the temple so you get to God. I'm the door to God. And then he says, I'm the good shepherd. That was declaring his superiority over David, the most feared and honored king of Israel. And then he says to Mary and Martha in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. You don't have to hope for it. I'm here to tell you, you can have it. And then, of course, in John 14, he says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. That's him declaring his superiority over the law. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And this is when he finally shows his disciples, all the law can do is condemn you. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 6 and 7. The law can only tell you what you're not capable of doing, keeping it. And Jesus says, but I've come because I am the way to get to God as Father. And then he says, I am the true vine. I am the true vine. And I have to tell you, unless you know Israel's history, this was shocking to these 11 disciples. So they get up. And they're walking out of that upper room, likely making their way across the Kedron Valley as they're going to go up to the Mount of Olives, which means they have to go through vineyards. But not only that, what you might not know is on the door, the the head wall where the the doors to the holy pace of the temple, it was adorned with a massive grapevine of which some were as tall as a six-foot man. And the rich and the opulent of Israel had paid for this and decorated it. And parts of it and clusters of grapes were made out of gold and silver and brass. And some were made and encrusted with diamonds. And all of this was meant to tell Israel, we are the vine. And this is what it says. So when Jesus says to the 11 disciples, I am the true vine, he was telling them, listen, Israel is not God's chosen one. I am. Israel is not the way to God. I am. In fact, the idea of the vine and the grape cluster was so important to Israel that in the first century, there were carvings of a grapevine minted onto coins. And so when Jesus says, I am the vine, he's looking at Peter and all these guys because you think Israel's the vine. No, I am. I am the one who will fulfill what Israel has failed to do. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 5 or 7, God called Israel his vineyard and the men of Judah his pleasant planting. But every time in the Old Testament you read about Israel as the vineyard or the vine, you will read about them being unfruitful, unfaithful, and unable to produce fruit and what God's holiness requires. If you want to read about it, the most famous psalm you can read is Psalm 80. In Psalm 80 and Isaiah 27, in the face of Israel's failure, you will read promises of a vineyard or a vine to come. That's why, by the way, in Isaiah 53, that Jesus is described as a tender plant that grew before God. Because he is the true vine. That's why God, Jesus, when he is at his baptism, that the voice of God the Father says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And so for the rest of this chapter, Jesus is going to unpack another blow to the disciples' idea of national pride as a means of religious security. And just like back in chapter 13 and chapter 14, while he takes away their hope in anything man-made, He always gives them hope. Now let's look at it. John 15, 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father, God, is the vine dresser. Now look down at verse 5. He says to the disciples, you, you are the branches. So as they're walking across the Kedron Valley and all these vineyards are around them. As Jesus probably points back and looks at the temple and they can see this massive grapevine that adorns the doorway. And he says to them, I'm the vine. God the Father is the vine dresser. And you, you are the branches. Jesus reminds them of this. On his way to the cross, with Judas gone to betray him. And with these 11 about to fail him. 
He says, I want you to realize the relationship we have and how you're connected to me. So let me ask you, Calvary Baptist and friends here and online, honestly, do you see yourself as connected to Jesus? Really? And if you notice in our passage in chapter, one, chapter 15, verse 2, Jesus then tells us that God the Father, the vine dresser, does two things as he oversees the vineyard. Notice it. Number one is he removes the dead wood. And number two is he prunes the living wood. In other words, God cuts off the fruitless branches and he cuts back the fruitful ones. This is his role. And that's why I actually say there's hope in this passage while it's being a reflective one. Jesus is about to explain to the disciples, God doesn't just desire for you and I to produce fruit. It's not just a wish he has. I wish you would do this. No, he says God is determined to actually produce fruit in our lives. Notice the importance of this because Jesus says that God is going to do this in verse 2, in verse 4, in verse 5, and again in verse 8. That the vine dresser will work out circumstances in our life to produce fruit. In fact, this bearing fruit is so important that Jesus says that it's actually the identifying mark of a true believer. So by the way, what this means and doesn't mean, if someone says to you, are you a Christian? And you go, yes. And you go, how do you know? Because I prayed a prayer. Great. That means nothing. Lots of people have prayed prayers. If you're putting your entire eternal destiny in life on a prayer without fruit, then it's nothing but a prayer. Jesus says that the identifying mark of a Christian is not your denomination. It's not this prayer card in your Bible. It's not how much you've served the church or gone to church or given to church. It's about whether or not you have this relationship with Jesus. Now th- stop again and think about that, all of us. Because look at verse 2 again. This is the one nerve-wracking statement in the entire passage. Every branch that does not bear fruit, God takes away. Now, when I get back from the holidays and I preach verses 6 to 11, I'm really going to unpack what that means because I think that's a very misunderstood passage. But I want you to realize this. Jesus wants the 11 disciples. He wants you and I to ask ourselves two questions. And by the way, you should ask yourself these two questions every single day. Number one, am I abiding in Jesus? And number two, does that bear fruit in my life? Because that's how you know you belong to God. Oh, and by the way, that's why God prunes our lives. Now, I don't know about you, but be honest. How many of you think, oh, I love being pruned? Right? I, I love suffering. I love setbacks. I love it when things don't go my way. I love it when hardships come. None of you do. I've been a pastor for over a quarter of a century. I have never yet gotten an email. Pastor, I just want you to praise God with me that I'm suffering. Usually the email goes, Pastor, I beg of you to pray for me because I'm suffering. But that's not what Jesus says here. And so when you learn this, in my study of this, I learned that, in, and I'm going to screw up this word, but I think it's called vita something or other, which means how to, the vineyard people do their thing. There are three ways that you prune. One is called pinching, one is called topping, and one is called aptly cutting. Pinching happens, and all of these things happen in the winter. And so what happens as the vine grows, sometimes it buds almost too quickly, and the vine dresser pinches the bud so as to control the rate of growth because they don't want it to grow too quickly because that actually would be bad for it. The other one is called topping, 
which promotes healthy growth, where they cut off one to two or three feet of the branch of the vine. They cut it back. And the other one called cutting is removing the dead wood of the branches. It's interesting, in this type of vineyard culturist, they, they actually call this word, the branches are called suckers. Because all they do is hinder the life-giving nutrients of the sap of the vine to spread to the healthy branches. And this is what God does. But the problem you and I have in a 21st century world is too often we see discipline as bad. And even worse, and the reason why I say, what is your relationship with God like? What is your most important relationship? Because often when we face suffering, when we face setbacks, when we face hardships, when we go through the junk of life that we don't like, we actually think God must be motivated by anger or impatience. Rarely do we see the suffering and pruning of the Lord as loving and caring and purposeful for our good. And for those of you that are parents especially of small little kids, you know what I'm talking about. I highly doubt any of you have yet had your 10-year-old or younger come to you and go, why, thank you, Father, for loving me so much as to deny me my ice cream for breakfast. Right? None of your 10, 11, or 12-year-olds, when you call them in to go to bed at 9 o'clock and it's still light out, has said, well, thank you for caring for my well-being. So I will get my 12 hours of sleep and I won't be a, cra- a cranky ignoramus tomorrow. Right? We, we don't see that. That's why my father taught me and his gr- father taught him. The older you get, the smarter your dad gets. Because you start to figure out how your father or your mother or someone in authority loved you. And what does pruning involve? It involves pain. It involves time. I think the biggest thing about pruning in our lives as Christians, because we got to own, most importantly, this, we're not in control. How often when we face trials and setbacks and hurts, when life doesn't go the way we want it to, or worse, when we think we've been good and then bad stuff happens. And ironically, when your view of God is all messed up, when things are going good and you keep waiting for something bad to happen. Have you ever been there? When you're almost like, it's, I'm anxious because it's going too good. Do you know how many people come to me for counseling? And literally I've had people, pastor, my marriage is going really well and that worries me. Because they're now waiting for the other shoe to drop. And so often we have questions like, God, what are you doing? God, why is this happening? God, what did I do wrong? God, how do I make this stop? God, where are you? God, if I say I'm sorry and change, will you be nice again? Be honest. I think everybody here has had some sort of this conversation with God. See, our natural desire is to say no suffering. But let me give you a thought about why suffering's in the world, and it's a gift from God. Malcolm Mugridge, in his book, Jesus Rediscovered, says this. Suppose you eliminated suffering. What a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. Man is bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. This is the purpose of it. So Jesus' message for us here in these five verses, for his disciples, for you and I, is that no matter what you face, God loves you. Job discovered this. And in Job 42, he gets to the point where he said, I used to know God with my head. Now I understand him with my heart. Paul told the Romans, right? In Romans chapter 8, who can lay anything against God's elect? And he says all of these things, right? For we are more than conquerors. And I love it to the Philippians. He said, I have learned in whatever situation I am therewith to be content, which gives us hope because learning must mean it's a process. 
So if the Apostle Paul struggled with learning how to be pruned, I take hope that it's okay for me to do it. Revelation proves that pruning has a happy ending. Because in Revelation 21, right, when God comes back and there's a new heaven and a new earth and there's no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. Why? Because the former things have passed away. But the writer of Hebrews, the preacher, explains it to us when he says, he talks about parents and earthly fathers, and he says, an earthly dad disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, God, disciplines us for our good, that we may share God's holiness. And for the moment, I love this, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. So you're not weird, you're not unspiritual, you're not getting it because your actual attitude is, I know I'm suffering and I don't like it. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those, and watch this again, who have been trained by it. It's meant to take time. So you and I can face two types of discipline from God. I don't know if you realize this because I think most of us think in one term and not both. You can get corrective discipline, which is stop doing that. Don't do that. I'm going to put you on a timeout. Or you can face formative discipline. It's just simply meant to make you into a better person. You haven't done anything wrong, but God allows it. Parents, you know this, right? Your kids come in, they tramped their muddy boots across the floor and you told them not to and they've disobeyed you and they're chowing down with the ice cream right out of the tub, right out of the freezer and you've got to correct that kind of behavior. But then they're out in the backyard playing, they've done nothing wrong, but you notice that the bed isn't made and the room is untidy and you call them in from this beautiful summer day and say, make your bed, clean your room. And they go, oh, what did I do wrong? Why are you doing this to me? And you go, you didn't do anything wrong, but I want to teach you the principle and the habit of making your bed before you, get up in the mor- before you leave in the morning. One is corrective, one is formative. And as you know, parents, kids don't like either one. And neither do you and I. And so often, he loved us. And this is what we need to realize this. You will face this, but God is never angry. He's never impatient. He never just looks out for his ease. In fact, Jesus is about to go sacrifice himself for their sin. He's 12 to 16 hours away from betrayal and denial and whipping and spitting and having his beard plucked out and being crucified. And yet he says, I love you. I will always love you. I will always be with you because of his relationship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit because that's what drives his relationship with you and I and it prevents us from having what I call when syndrome. Kent Hughes describes it, when I get spiritually mature, then all this bad stuff will stop. When I get married, then I won't struggle with lust anymore. When I get out on my own, then I won't struggle with my anger or fighting with mom and dad anymore. When I retire, I won't struggle with money or entitlement anymore. Have you noticed that every one of those is a discontentment statement? But listen to David in Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray. In verse 71, David says, It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. So sometimes the pain of pruning comes because of our sins. Other times it's simply because God our Father loves us enough that he wants us to bear more fruit. And whatever the reason for the pruning... I know your natural self, like me, will always want to escape it. No one says, sign me up for suffering and correction. Nevertheless, here's the question. This is what Jesus is getting to. Will you and I trust God and believe that his pruning is beneficial for us and for his glory? 
And so look at verses 3 and 4, because now Jesus explains how we live life in his strength. In verse 3, he starts with a promise. Already you are clean. That's a promise. Then he follows that up with a command. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Now remember, back in chapter 13, when they heard you were already clean, they had an instant illustration of what that meant. Remember what happened back in chapter 13 when Jesus got up and washed their feet? So he's already washed their feet. And remember the whole conversation with Peter? When Peter says, Lord, I don't want you to wash my feet. And then the Lord says, well, if I don't wash your feet, then you're not one of us. And he's like, well, then don't just wash my feet. Wash all of me. And then Jesus corrects him and says, you don't need to be all washed, Peter. I've already washed you. But you're going to need your feet washed. What is that an illustration of? Two things. Jesus is saying the word of God that points to Jesus. You see, it's the word of God that will keep pointing you to Jesus. He told Peter, you're, not, you're going to need to be re-cleaned, not re-saved. So it's a constant washing of the word of God. That's why Paul told the Romans in Romans 12 too, be transformed how? By the renewing of your mind. He told the Colossians to set their affections on the things above. He told Timothy that God intends the word to penetrate our heart and unmask our true thoughts. Because the Bible is breathed out by God and is profitable to clean us. How? In teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And so the actual word for cleansing is connected to the idea of pruning. It means the removal of unwanted materials. And that's why the writer and the preacher of Hebrews chapter 4 said, The word of God is living and active. My favorite new cleaner out now is this power wash stuff. Have you seen it? You don't have to have like the the other. You just got the power. It comes with a spray. Debbie thinks I'm obsessed over it. Because every time she gives me a dish, I can't wait to go to the sink and just spray the power wash at it. Because all you do is just spray it. And then literally, you can watch the dirt just slide off whatever you spray it on. And for a man, that's awesome. (laughs) Because it just means less work. My wife says it's wasting money. And I'm like, let me have this one thing. All right? Jesus basically says the word of God is the power wash where you can bring anything to it and you just spray it and it just washes the junk away from you. But let me ask you, how much time do you spend with the power wash of the word? And by the way, Fruit here is not stuff. It's not attending church. It's not you got baptized. It's not that you tithe. It's not that you served in this way or that way. Jesus is talking about not religious stuff, but character stuff. The fruit here is not evangelism. And how many people have you led to Jesus? Have you ever noticed in the Bible the fruit of the Spirit is in terms of Righteousness, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In one of the commentaries I read, the commentator said that an elder's wife came to him and informed him that she was just an ornery person. She said, I'm just hard to get along with and you're just going to have to live with that. So he took her to Galatians chapter 5 and said, well, sister, why don't you tell me how God in your life has shaped these types of fruit? And he read Galatians 5 and she said, I'm not any one of those things. And to her horror, the new pastor said, then may I suggest that you might want to consider giving your life to Christ. And she was grossly offended. As she listed off how long she had attended the church and how long her husband had been an elder. And he said, God is not impressed with your resume. He's only impressed with your soul that belongs to him. And that's changed by your attitude. 
And so what does Jesus say? Did you notice? In verses 3 and 4, three times. Abide in me. So constantly remind yourself of something. Who loves us? Why Jesus loves us? What Jesus has done for us? What is our future? Because then and only then will you understand verse 5. Finally, Jesus explains how we mature past our own strength. I am the vine. You are the branches. For the fourth time in five verses, whoever abides in me and I in him, he or she it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So he looks right at these 11 disciples. He says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Peter, you, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Matthew, Thaddeus, Simon, Bartholomew, and the other James. You must see yourselves as being totally dependent on me. Now why? Young people to listen up now. Tim Keller says this is beautiful. As long as you think there is a pretty good chance that you will receive or achieve some of your dreams... As long as you think you have a shot at success, you experience your inner emptiness as drive and your inner anxiety as hope. Boom. Because you got to see yourself in Christ. Four times in five verses. Abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. Now, he doesn't mean you can't do stuff. That's not what he's saying. And that's the issue of our day. That's why Matthew 7 is going to haunt so many people. Because people are going to say, Lord, didn't we do many wonderful and marvelous things in your name? And Jesus said, depart from me. I, didn't, I don't know you. Again, our, our, uh, Kent Hughes warns, there are many things we can do without Christ. We can earn a living, raise a family, even practice generosity. It's possible to pastor a church without abiding. You can even counsel people without abiding. So what does Christ mean? He means that we cannot bear spiritual fruit without Him. And too much in the 21st century, we're tying fruit onto ourselves like ornaments on a Christmas tree. Without the real fruit of God's character, which comes from Jesus Himself, we can do nothing without Him. We cannot be loving or patient or faithful or holy. That is why God does not shield us from the assaults of life, but rather exposes them. The reason why you face all these things is so you got to look in the mirror and go, I didn't realize I could get this angry. I didn't realize I could be this selfish. I didn't realize I could be this bad. And then God says, Excellent. Now come to me. Give it to me because I died for it. And there's freedom from this. And by the way, so this abiding in Christ means to dwell. It's close communion. It's fellowship. It's why Paul said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ and now I live in Christ. Abiding is to draw near. You don't treat Jesus like a fire hose in the hospital break glass in case of emergency. It's not self-improvement. It's daily in the Word of God. And if you want to see this in illustration, it's Peter. You remember Peter back in Matthew 14 when Jesus walks on the water and it looks like he's walking by and the disciples yell out and Peter says, Lord, if it's really you, let me get out of this boat and walk. And while his eyes are on his Savior, what does Peter do? He walks on water. But the moment he takes his eyes off Christ... And he starts looking at the waves and he sees the wind. What happens? He starts to sink. But then what does he do? Lord, save me. He gets his eyes back on Jesus. So when your marriage feels like it's sinking, where do you look? When your kids are imploding, where do you look? When you've lost your job and the debt's piling up, where do you look? When you're frustrated and you feel like life is overwhelming and you feel the waves of depression and anxiety and value and you're wondering about what's my purpose in life going to add up and be the sum total of it. Where do you look? To chicken soup for the soul? Or to Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords? And so what are you and I supposed to do with a passage like this? What do I want you to leave here? Well, I'm going to ask again. How important is your relationship with Jesus Christ? Do you 
Are you remaining and abiding, abiding in Christ? Dane Ortland says this, To whom do you think God to be in your sin and in your suffering? Who do you think God is? Not just on paper, but in the kind of person you believe is hearing you when you pray. What do you think God feels about you? You see, I think that many people think God is like I think many men think about their wives. I know she loves me, I just don't know if she likes me. And I think a lot of Christians would say, oh, I think God loves me. I'm just not sure if God likes me. Well, how can God love you if he doesn't like you? Why wouldn't you go to him? You realize that his saving of you and his keeping of you, his pruning of you, it's not cool and calculating. He's yearning for you. And he's not yearning for the Facebook version of you. He's yearning for you. That is the messy, messy, dirty, honest, real uh, version of you. The reason Jesus says abide over and over again is because he knows just how weak you are. He knows how much we will not believe in or trust his love for us. I remember last week, I had all the staff at mile one. We were all around the table. And I asked them to describe for me, how does God the Father love God the Son? And they all went full theologian. And they laid out these massive declaration of God, God's love for God the Son. And then I stopped and I said, now... What does God's word say? That God the Father loves us the same way. And the room went silent. And everybody started to look down. And I asked Miss Haley over there, why do you look so uncomfortable? And she said, because thinking that God loves me like that makes me uncomfortable. Because we don't usually think God loves us that much. But he does. That's what will fuel your abiding. This is what it is. Do you, are you trusting in Christ's plan for you? That's what this passage is. Never forget, the chief end of our existence is to give God glory, but to enjoy Him forever. The gospel is not about us. It's for us. And this is John's purpose statement in John chapter 20. That if you would believe, you might have life, you'll have joy, you'll produce fruit. So are you and do you wait on God's timing for you, for your marriage, for your kids, for your future, for your feelings, for what God is doing in your life? Deuteronomy 31, it is the Lord who goes before you. He will be with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. Paul Tripp said this, be at peace. We never arrive at a situation or location where our Lord isn't already there, ruling it all for his glory and our good. So are you suffering with chronic pain? Are you frustrated because you can't serve the way you want or do the job you want? Is life just difficult for you? God's already there. And he's not mad. See, this world is starving for love. And you and I are. We long for a love that remembers but doesn't forsake. We long for a love that doesn't depend on us but rests on another. A love that knows our mess and comes to us in our mess. It's bigger and better than anything the world offers or can because we've got it in Jesus Christ. And are you truly in love with Jesus Or are we still just busy playing games at the foot of the cross? Many of you know this verse, right? Psalm 42. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. It's a lovely little cute song. But is that us? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Well, Lord, I will give you five minutes of Bible reading while I binge watch eight hours of Netflix and my favorite TV show. And you wonder why you're not abiding. This is what it means. Imagine if I told Debbie, I love you, but I can barely tolerate being in your presence. Where would you like to go for your anniversary? And yet... Are we guilty of treating God like that? 
And this is what I want you to realize. And this doesn't mean perfection. Do you realize what these 11 disciples are going to do hours from now? Peter will deny Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And I told you about my dad. And my dad changed my life that day when he told me, I do love God and the church more than I love you and your mom. And I wish I could tell you it was a happy ending. It wasn't. Weeks after that, I would run away from home. I would embarrass my mother and father. I would lie about them. I would embarrass everybody in my family. I practically blew our family up. And for months, I was estranged from my family. But when I came to the end of myself, and I had nowhere else to turn, I remembered a father who said, because I love God, I know how to love you. And I knew I could call my dad. And when you abide in Christ... It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you won't fail, cataclysmically fail. But when you realize who Jesus is and what he's done for you, something rings in your head and says, I know, I know I can go back to my Abba Father. Because he, he abide. that's why I can't stand him, by the way, abide with me. He's got it totally backwards. It's not about asking God to abide with me as if there's an option. God promises he abides. The hymn should be, oh God, help me to abide in you. And then our lives will be changed. You see this, love ignites lavish, lavish relationship. Giving sacrificially. Gaze upon Christ long enough and you'll become more of a giver. And give long enough and you'll become more like Christ. And as Forrest Gump says, that's all I have to say about this. Let's pray. Father God, I have felt overwhelmed by this passage. Not because it's hard to preach. But because, Lord, I want to live this out. Lord, in this passage, you said we would bear fruit. And then through your pruning, you said we would bear more fruit. And then through ongoing pruning, we would bear much fruit. And yet, Lord, I am so easily, easily discouraged. I'm so like Peter. I want to walk on water. And yet, even hours from this service, I'll be guilty at staring at the waves of life. Help me every time to say, God, save me. Help you to be the greatest relationship I have so that it's the way I'll be fueled to love Debbie right and love my children right and my grandchildren right and to love this church properly and to love this city right. And Lord, help me not to serve you in my own strength, but Father, to serve you out of the abundance of my relationship with you. And may that be true of every man and woman here. And may we not trust in a sinner's prayer, but trust in a sinless Savior. Help us to cling to Jesus, to look at Jesus. Help us to prioritize Christ today, this week, this month, this year. And may we learn over this summer as we head into September, should you give it to us, that this is where we find our strength, our value, and our purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.